When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Zeke Fox is an investigative reporter for Bloomberg and the author of Number Goes Up, a wild first-hand account of his journey into the world of cryptocurrencies and the, should we say, larger-than-life characters he met along the way, including Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX. He joined us for a conversation with Oliver Bullo, the author of Butler to the World and Moneyland. So, good to be here. Zeke Fox, author of Number Go Up. I think this is the best book on crypto that I've read. It's the only book of crypto that I've read that makes sense to me. Before I read it, I thought crypto was overcomplex, boring, and populated by the world's most annoying people. So it was never something I wanted to get in any way involved with. I suppose the first question is, why did you get involved in it? Well, I felt exactly the same way as you. That you, you summarized my take on crypto right there. And I would actually say that after spending two years investigating it, I think I came to that same conclusion. But uh, yeah, I'm a longtime investigative reporter, and I've always written about the shady side of finance. And I really like these characters who take crazy risks and make a lot of money doing things that are in gray areas or outright illegal. But I totally resisted crypto for years. I thought that the schemes were not interesting enough. It was There wasn't anything for me to investigate. These guys were just going out there and saying, hey, Cardano is the future of finance. And then Cardano tokens were going up and up and up and people were making lots of money. It just, there wasn't anything there. But after I got a crypto related assignment from my editor at Business Week, I went to a crypto conference back in spring of 2021. It's Bitcoin 2021 Miami. And when I got there, I met all sorts of insane characters. There was this guy, Alex Mashinsky, who told me that he paid up to 18% interest if you deposited your money with him. Like he was essentially running a bank that paid an insane amount of interest. Sounded like a straight up Ponzi scheme. And he was this kind of slimy hustler type. He seemed like he should be selling, uh, you know, knives door to door or, or uh, 
Tupperware or something like that. And when I asked him, how much money do you have? He said, oh, yes, um, I've raised $20 billion for this scheme. Then I, I also met this younger guy. He had a big mop of curly hair. He was wearing a T-shirt and shorts. He was in town to rename the Miami Heat's NBA basketball arena after his cryptocurrency exchange, FTX. He'd flown in from Hong Kong. And we sat down. He seemed pretty... Uh, at the time, he was worth $20 billion. He's 29 years old. He's one of the richest guys in the world. And we sat down, and he just seemed like a, you know, a college kid who just pulled an all-nighter studying for an exam. And he was, he was tapping his legs like crazy. Um, and I was just sitting there asking you know, real basic questions about crypto. It's clear he was very bored, but trying his best. Uh, and this guy was Sam Bankman fried And another Bitcoin guy announced that the country of El Salvador was adopting Bitcoin as a national currency. And he cried. He was, he was bawling as he said this. And the audience was in tears too. And when I got back to New York, I told my editor, I was wrong to resist crypto. These are my people. There's so many to write about. I got to do it. And I don't think I'll be able to investigate all of these schemes before this giant bubble collapses, but we better get on it. Now, I think there are going to be two kinds of responses to most of what you've just said. One will be people who already know about cryptocurrencies who will be bridling at the fact you compared them to knives or Tupperware. And the other group of people who will be saying, hang on, what on earth is crypto? Can we deal with the second lot first and just do the the explanation for those of us who haven't spent our time hanging around with those appalling sounding people, what is cryptocurrency? And, you know, if you were a true believer, which it sounds like you're not, and having read your book, in fact, I know you're not. If you were a true believer, what would you think it was for? Cryptocurrency is a lot of things to different people. And I also found it pretty confusing to start. And I realized that there's actually a pretty simple way to think about it. You can think about cryptocurrency as a spreadsheet, like a Google Docs, and it's got two columns. And in column A, there's a list of people, of accounts. And these people are not identified by their real name. Each one is assigned you know, a string of random numbers, and that's their wallet address. That's where you hold your cryptocurrency. And in column B is a number, and that's how many of the cryptocurrency you have. So if we're talking about Bitcoin, the number represents how many Bitcoins you have. And if I buy a Bitcoin for, even now that costs something like 25,000 US dollars. So if I buy a Bitcoin from you, I would send you 25,000 real dollars, and then your number in the spreadsheet would go down by one, and mine would go up by one. And the Bitcoin doesn't really exist in any other sense. It's just a number on this spreadsheet. And what makes it a legitimate, pretty sophisticated technological innovation is that, I mean, what I just described is a lot like what a bank does. It's just keeping track of how much money everyone has. And in crypto, this spreadsheet is maintained by a network of essentially volunteers who have this really complicated system for coordinating and for keeping track of whether the spreadsheet is real and accurate. 
if, if a, with a bank, the bank just has a copy of the spreadsheet in its vault and the bank's in charge of keeping track. So if you like crypto, you think it's very important that there's a way for people to get together and maintain this spreadsheet themselves and that it's great that no bank is involved. But the problem is that with no bank involved, there's no customer service. You know, if somebody breaks into my computer, they can change the number in the spreadsheet, send all my Bitcoins to you, and there's no recourse. There's nothing to do about it. And also, banks follow all sorts of rules about preventing money laundering, terrorist financing. Uh, banks are required to know their customer so that they can enforce these rules. In crypto, that's not part of, the, of these blockchains. And so, I mean, if you're a crypto guy, that's also a good thing. It's, crypto could be an escape valve if your government is not allowing you to conduct financial transactions. So a lot of cryptocurrencies are basically alternative ways to move money around using this spreadsheet. And then some of the other ones, they still use the spreadsheet, but the numbers essentially represent shares of stock in some sort of company. So picking up from the word spreadsheet, right? Now, I'm currently in the process of using a spreadsheet to do my tax return. I'm really unenthusiastic about this. Now, a lot of people use spreadsheets all day, every day. Very few people are enthusiastic about them. And yet somehow there's something about the cryptocurrency spreadsheet game that has created an almost cultish community around this technology, which is one of the most, I mean, I suppose you could say entertaining or disturbing, depending on your viewpoint, aspects of your book. What is that, do you think? What is it about this particular spreadsheet that generates such wild enthusiasm and loyalty? I mean, when you think about it, it, it is pretty powerful that if you think back to the early days, someone, the first one was Bitcoin. And this anonymous person or group who went by the name Satoshi Nakamoto created this technology, which was a, which admittedly my description of it is an oversimplification. And it, it is pretty complicated to come up with this system to maintain this, you know, spreadsheet in the cloud that has no central overseer. And he posted this online, and at first it was just sort of hobbyists who liked it. And now we've got whole countries where the government is encouraging people to use Bitcoin. Even after this big crash, one Bitcoin goes for $25,000. And people have made you know huge fortunes by believing in this vision. So I think if you get excited by the ideas you can sort of talk yourself into them being really powerful. And you can't, I mean, and there are legitimately things to be impressed by just how far crypto has come, all the things that, if you start with your expectations kind of low and you're like, all right, wow, this random guy posted this thing on the internet and now people are using it to, you know, now Wall Street banks are investing millions of dollars in it, or I can use it to buy a coffee in San Salvador you know, it is kind of impressive. So I could see how you would get really excited about it. And this whole world of people has sprung up that's really good at PR and spreading the word about crypto. And it's become like a hobby for them to, uh, like a lot of crypto people spend time every day 
you know, running crypto podcasts or writing about how great crypto is. And every little positive thing that happens in the crypto world gets amplified, you know, a thousandfold. So it's pretty impressive how good crypto people are at promoting what really is just this like spreadsheet in the sky. Part of this is this really fascinating kind of meme culture whereby so much of sort of self-reinforcing online trends. And your title, Num Go Up, is kind of a little bit part of that. Before I dig too deeply into, uh, you know, the basis of what you're saying, could you talk about the title? Because I think this is hilarious. So Number Go Up is Crypto Talk. And at this first conference in Miami, and it's a pretty common saying, but I heard someone use it at this first conference. And there was a guy on stage and he said, number go up technology is a powerful piece of technology. It means the price goes up, people get excited, they tell their friends, more people get in. As more people get in, the price goes up more. People get even more excited. They retract a new wave of buying and the price goes up again. And I'm sitting here thinking, you're describing a pyramid scheme. This doesn't work. The price can't go up forever. But the crazy thing is, for a couple of years there, it really did work. All of these cryptocurrencies were going up and up and up. It didn't matter how dumb they were. It didn't matter if they didn't do anything. And, you know, as the crypto people also like to say, uh, wag me. They would post that a lot for we're all going to make it. And that it was the same sentiment. Just buy crypto, believe, and we're all going to get rich. I mean, it is. I mean, there are so many parallels between what this this culture you're talking about and what I saw in Eastern Europe in the 1990s and early 2000s with these pyramid schemes that bankrupted whole countries and certainly whole chunks of the population of whole countries. It's amazing how they keep coming back. You remember the Mavrodi pyramid yeah, scheme? The Triple M one, yeah. yeah. Yes, and he, one of the big ones, and he eventually pivoted to crypto because he saw that this was such a a powerful story that it was better than any pyramid scheme of the past. He started, he made it, his, well, his, his pyramid scheme became sort of a Bitcoin pyramid scheme. So the, there are, you know, that pivots nicely onto the characters in your book. I and mean, we're going to get onto Sam Bankman-Fried, who you mentioned later. But I mean, you, some of the people are just so improbable. I mean, you have a, a plastic surgeon who becomes a big, you know, crypto guy. But I think my favorite is Brock Pierce. Can you talk a bit about Brock Pierce and how you ended up hanging out with him? So if you have seen the classic Disney ice hockey film, The Mighty Ducks, you've seen Brock Pierce. He's in the opening. He plays uh, the coach Gordon Bombay in a flashback. He's a child hockey player who misses a crucial penalty shot and is haunted by it later in life. And Brock had a very successful career as a as a child actor. He starred in a movie where he was a uh, the naughty son of the president who had to hang out with had to be kept in line by a comedian who was a secret service agent. And he went from there to have a career at a as a teenager, he was hired to work at an extremely dubious dot com startup. And then after fleeing to Spain with the founder of that startup, who was facing child abuse charges, he then started a company that traded digital items. And I think this is where he 
got the ideas that made him so big in the crypto world. He is, if you remember World of Warcraft or EverQuest, these massively multiplayer online games. So in those games, there was digital gold. It was controlled by the game company, but it was a kind of alternative currency. And those games were played by millions of people. And it got to be where if you wanted, you know, a rare sword, you would need a lot, a lot of digital gold. And players started buying and selling the digital gold for real money on eBay and other sites like that. And people in poor countries realized that they could go in that game, just grind it out, maybe kill some sheep or orcs or whatever, and earn enough digital gold that they could beat you know, the hourly wage they'd get at other jobs, even though, I mean, it wasn't much, maybe 50 cents a dollar an hour. And these people became known as gold farmers. And Brock Pierce became like the king of the gold farmers. He had a company that would buy the, he set up an office in Shanghai. He would buy the gold from the gold farmers, sell it to the richer, richer players in the U.S. and other countries. He ended up selling his stake in this company and cleared $20 million or something like that. And so back in 2013, Bitcoin was still kind of a hobbyist thing. It didn't have the same name recognition and widespread appeal that it does now. But Brock, having seen the value of digital currencies and having $20 million, was one of the first, he was one of the only people with real money who was willing to invest it in this Bitcoin ecosystem. And rather than just buying Bitcoin, he became a kind of Bitcoin venture capitalist. And why I got interested in him was among the things that he started at that time was a company called Tether. And rather than describe Tether in too much detail, I will tell you about when I got to go meet Brock, which was gives you a better idea of what Brock is about. So I was in the Bahamas as one frequently has to be when writing about crypto. And a friend of mine showed me some, had been at this wild party on a yacht moored offshore. And after some discussion with her, I realized this was Brock's yacht. He was, I'd been wanting to see him so we could talk about this company Tether I was investigating. So he sent over a speedboat to pick me up and take me about uh, you know, a half mile offshore where I could, it was nighttime. I could just see the lights on the horizon. Truly the most impressive lead up to an interview that I've ever been on. When I got there, it was, I mean, it was like a 300 foot yacht. It was truly impressive. Um, but I realized that I had actually come to sort of a yacht timeshare presentation. And I was asked to go on a tour as if I might want to buy some of this uh, share of this yacht using crypto, of course. It was a crypto yacht. And as I'm on the timeshare tour, we come upon Brock. And I, you know, I've been wanting to see him for a long time, so I was very excited. He was wearing, he knows the, he's a, he knows the value of a good story, and he makes sure to look the part. And so he's wearing a fedora with feathers and playing cards stuck in it. He's shirtless with a leather vest that goes down to his knees. He's got all sorts of bracelets and rings on. Basically, he looks like he's dressed as Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean for Halloween. And he's prattling on about how crypto is going to change the world. And when I asked him about Tether, he's also, he's very charismatic and he's full of great lines. When I asked him about Tether and how he came to create 
this important crypto company, he said, I'm a doula for creation. I only take on missions impossible. And these are the kinds of guys I got to meet in crypto. So uh, definitely beats writing about Wall Street bankers. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, you, you have a series of, of I mean, the, the, the festival you went to, the, the Board 8 Yacht Club party, has also seemed to feature large numbers of these borderline mad, borderline messianic people. But I found really powerful the way you went from talking about Tether, you know, which is a, a kind of interface between crypto and the real world, right? It allows you to, to essentially change your dollars for crypto. Then you went to Cambodia and met the victims of this. So you get the sort of both sides, the absurd side and the deeply serious side. How did that work going to Cambodia? Yeah, so this these Tether tokens are, it's kind of funny, they're the most popular cryptocurrency in terms of volume traded per day, but they're also the most boring. They're just worth a dollar because in theory, each Tether is backed by a real dollar in the bank. I think it sort of tells you something about crypto that the one people like to use the most is the one that's basically imitation dollars and not one of these, you know, crazy distributed currencies. And so like other people, I had heard that criminals preferred to use Tether because they didn't want to deal with calculating their prices in rapidly changing, you know, Bitcoin exchange rates. And I'd even seen, it comes up from time to time. Most recently, the Israeli government sanctioned some accounts that were, they said were tied to Hamas. And Hamas was using, had collected tens of millions of dollars and their preferred using cryptocurrency and their preferred coin also appeared to be Tether. So you keep these headlines were kind of I'd always get these clues that crypto that Tether was popular for, with criminals. And but I wasn't sure how I was going to investigate this since I did not want to go, you know, visit Hamas and ask them what they thought about Tether. Then I got a spam text message and it said something along the lines of, oh, hey, David, how's it going? And my name is Zeke, it's not David, but I decided to play along. And I developed a sort of long distance friendship by this with this woman who said her name was Vicky Ho. And she would send me pictures where she appeared to be an attractive young Asian woman. And she liked to talk about um, her fancy hobbies. She sent me pictures of her Ferrari golfing, you know, she made clear she had a lot of money and she she took her time. But over a few days, she also made clear that the way she made her money was through crypto trading. And I had heard about this sort of scam before. It's called pig butchering. And what it is, is they try to seduce you with friendship or even a pretend romance. And they get they tell you they're great at crypto trading and they get you to send them a lot of money and then once you've sent in a lot, they steal it all and you're slaughtered like a pig who's been fattened up. 
That's why they call it that. And so I played along with Vicky. She eventually had me send her some tethers. And then I was, one of the nice things about crypto is when you send someone money, you're given their address and you can research other transactions that went to this address, even though they're all kind of anonymous, pseudonymous, uh, you can still see the other anonymous transactions going in and out of that, that address. And I've met with a bunch of crypto experts. I was looking into Vicky and what I learned was that there's a really dark side of these kinds of scams. They account, Vic, this Vicky wallet alone had collected like $10 million from people like me. And overall, billions of dollars have been lost this way. But the terrible part is the people sending these messages, they, they're mostly in Cambodia, like you said, and they themselves are often victims of human trafficking. So the person sending the message was probably not an attractive young Asian woman. They were likely like a young man from Vietnam who's answered a job ad uh, looking for customer service representatives. They've come to Cambodia to take this job. And once they're there, they're trapped and they're threatened with beatings, torture, even death, and made to work around the clock, sending these dumb spam messages and trying to get people to trade crypto with them. And it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but the United Nations estimates that more than 200,000 people have been trapped this way. And I even went to Cambodia myself to, I had to see it. It felt like I had one of those things you had to see to believe. I spoke with people who had escaped from these centers, heard awful things. But one thing that I found pretty telling doesn't prove anything, but I was at one of these scam compounds where I'd heard thousands and thousands of people had been trapped. And right at the entrance, there was a currency exchange that advertised, swap your tethers for US dollars right here. So there were a lot of signs that crypto was facilitating all this activity. It's interesting that a, a, a sort of an investigation that began looking into Tether meant you ended up hanging out with Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, and it turned out that actually, if there was, you know, let's face it, he hasn't been convicted. He remains innocent until proven guilty, but he is on trial for what is one of the great crypto frauds, if indeed it turns out to be a fraud. Um, certainly the indictment uh, suggests that it is. How was he, and I suppose, how did you feel about the fact that while you were researching this book, um, he ended up tumbling over so spectacularly? I, I mean, it was a big surprise to me. I went into the book with the idea that crypto was mostly scams and hype and that it was an unsustainable bubble that would soon collapse. And nothing I found changed my mind about that. But when I, and I met Sam, things were going great. He was one of the biggest users of this Tether coin. So I had wanted to talk with him about that. But my impression of Sam was that um, if you're not familiar, if you're listening, you don't know much about his company FTX, you could think of it like a E-Trade or, or like a casino. Basically, you would send money to FTX and then you could go once you had you had download their app and you could trade Dogecoin, Cardano, whatever, just like you were you would on on any other, you know, trading app. And so I thought that and I told him it seemed to me like he was running a casino where people would 
likely lose money gambling on all these dumb coins. But I had no idea that secretly, I mean, a casino, right? You, you buy your chips, you think the money will be there when you go to cash in the chips. I had no idea that secretly when people gave money for chips at the FTX casino, he was taking all that money to other casinos and gambling with it himself. And when users wanted to get their money back, it was gone. So that, that was shocking to me. And I, it wasn't part of my plan for the book at all. But once it, was, once it happened in November 2022, I thought, I better get down to the Bahamas and uh, talk with Sam about this because it totally went against everything that, I, that he had said to me when I'd interviewed him for the book earlier. So I flew down there and talked my way into his $30 million penthouse and spent a day talking about the, the collapse of FTX and hearing all his excuses for why he wasn't responsible. It, it probably hasn't escaped many of our, your listeners uh, notice that yours is not the only book that features Sam Bankman-Fried, which has come out at this time. Michael Lewis, uh, the, the veteran, a legend of financial journalism, has also got a book out about Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, a feature of the reviews, and you tend to be reviewed together, is that people tend to say, don't read Michael Lewis's book, read Zeke Fox's book. Uh, now, I'm guessing you're pretty pleased about that. I'd certainly would be pretty pleased about that. But but Michael Lewis doesn't seem to be very happy about this. Um, are you guys, do you have a bit of a feud going on? What's, what's happening here? So, I mean, this is my first book. And I, in my head, I knew for a long time while I was writing it that he was doing one too. And certainly in my mind, I was like, uh-oh, Michael Lewis is writing a book too. You better do a good job with this one. But I did not think that Michael Lewis was sitting there thinking, uh-oh, Zeke Fox is writing a book. I better write a, a good book. I mean, his book is going to be a number one bestseller no matter what. So I thought this was a sort of imaginary rivalry that was all in my head. But the other day, he was, I mean, he's been profiled in every newspaper since this book came out. And in the New York Times asked Lewis, what do you think about Zeke Fox? And he said um, that I was corrupt and possibly more skeevy than Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, I, I saw that. So, I, I'm speaking just for your British audience here. I don't know the word skeevy. Well, what is that? Uh, it's like creepy. Okay. Yeah. And so... I mean, it's a badge of honor to be, to me, to now to know that this, this rivalry is not only in my head, um, but I was surprised to see him insult me like that. I was expecting more of like, a, I hope that if, if, in many, if I'm ever a successful writer who's, and a, a younger writer writes about the same thing as me, that I would be nice to that younger writer and say, hey, nice job with your book or something, not call him skeevy and corrupt but he so the thing that he's taking offense to is that um in my book i describe something that i saw in the bahamas at one of these crypto conferences and i he michael lewis was there and this was a conference hosted by sam bankman fried meant to celebrate the success of sam bankman fried and ftx and i saw michael lewis on stage interviewing sam there and I, I, it was very surprising to me. He was incredibly fawning, and he was just saying really 
nice things about Sam. It almost sounded like an ad for crypto and for Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, he said, you're breaking land speed records. I don't think people are really noticing just how dramatic the revolution has become. Uh, and most absurd to me, he said, you look at the existing financial system, then you look at what's been built outside the existing financial system by crypto, and the crypto version is better. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait, I've just been investigating crypto scams for like a year. And here you have a writer who I really admire, who taught me a lot about the last financial crisis. And he seems to just have no clue what's going on in the crypto world. Um, so I wrote about that in my book. And I think that's why uh, he was upset in that interview with The Times. But I, I do think it's a really interesting demonstration of the attractiveness of crypto as a concept and the kind of I suppose the the way the culture around it manages to erase critical thinking in the, as it were, even Michael Lewis ended up essentially enthusiastic about what turned out to be, you know, a giant, you know, multi-level marketing scheme, pyramid scheme. Um, do you think now that FTX has collapsed and, well, essentially collapsed and, you know, other companies obviously alongside it, you know, Terra Luna and these other schemes, do you think this is it for crypto or do you think it's going to come back? So I do think that crypto is dead and you can add to the list that guy, Alex Mashinsky, I mentioned at the beginning with his pyramid scheme, he's been arrested and charged with fraud. It turns out you cannot, there's no reliable way to generate 18% returns, but I think crypto has been really discredited by these last two years and the crypto faithful they're really hoping that there have been some crashes in the past and they're hoping that it's going to come back. But I think that this it reached a new level of visibility in these last two years. And so many people have heard about now when you think crypto, you're, you are going to think scam. You are going to think great way to lose my money. And instead of thinking about your friend who got rich off Dogecoin, you're going to think about someone who who actually lost money on it. So I think it's going to be hard to recruit the the next level of people to make number go up again. Um, but that said, some multi-level marketing schemes have really impressive half-lives. And I think about, uh, there was one called Herbalife that was big and sold, you know, diet shakes and things like that. And as it's been pretty well established that it's not, it's, it's one of those business opportunity things. And it, people don't usually make money on it. It often ends in tears, but they'll, it'll just take off in a new country. And it's, it's gone around the world. And it's, there, were, there were people on Wall Street who tried to bet against Herbalife and lost their shirts. So I don't think all cryptocurrencies will go to zero next month or that we'll never see another crypto scheme. But... I just I can't imagine we'll ever see a mania that matches this last one. Well, yeah, I, I fear you and me aren't going to run out of things to write about, put it that way. <laughs> um, listen, that's been amazing and fascinating. Um, I think this is a great book, as you know, and I really recommend everyone reads it. It's, I think, the, the, the not just the funniest, but also the truest examination of this mania as you describe it over the last little while and i can't wait to see what's next so thanks zeke it's been fun thank you oliver great talking with you 
This episode starred Zeke Fox and was presented by Oliver Bullo. The show is made by me, Vas Christodoulou, Esme Bright and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. If you missed it, you might also like last week's episode with Gordon Brown, Mohamed El Aryan, and Michael Spence on how to fix the global permacrisis. Or, for a completely different take on wasting money, my interview with John Higgs on the KLF, the band who burned a million pounds. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>